Oh, Father, if somehow we could make this moment last and last. We know where we are. We are in a holy place, in the presence of a holy God. We have been worshiping you. We have not stopped. In your mercy and grace, would you honor this worship by bringing to us a word? Hush all the voices within us. And somehow through the majesty of this moment, let it be your voice that speaks to us. We want to hear and we wish to heed for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our holy God speaks these words to us. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of this earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But the Lord has chosen you because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers and mothers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let my people go. Therefore know... That the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. When you think about being chosen, there are probably more than a few of us who remember those long ago days. During recess, on that playground schoolyard, teachers picked the two biggest guys in class and asked them to be the captains. Choose up two teams in a sport where winning matters. And the rest of us We form obediently that line in the playground and we wait. One by one, the big captains gaze over that motley line and call a name. We nervously are holding our breath shifting our weight from one sneaker to the other. 
And every time a name is called, amazingly, that line gets thinner. And you're still in it. And in a moment, a painful moment that too many of us remember, there is that panic thought. What if today I don't get chosen? What if today I have to stand on the sidelines and watch the chosen play their games? For some of us, ooh, that is a painful memory. Because nobody wants to not be chosen. Not in a presidential election, not with the invitations to a party. Nobody wants to get left out. So what are we going to do? We've run smack dab into the heart of this word chosen. How are we going to handle this? Open your Bible with me, please, to the book that is our new theme book for this brand new journey that you and I embarked upon last week together. The book of Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible. It's the towering climax to the mighty Pentateuch, the Hebrew Bible, the first five books. This is Deuteronomy. In the Greek, the name actually means the duet, the, the, the two, the, the second law. It's the repeating of the law. In the Hebrew, the actual name of this book is the first words of the book itself. These are the words that were written. We're going to the book of Deuteronomy. This is a book, I remind you, that actually was orally presented before it was written. It's a farewell address. This is the last time he will be with these people. I've got to remind you, those of you that missed last week, let me just set the table again. The congregation is under the age of 60. This vast horde of liberated slaves, they're actually children of the liberated slaves, under the age of 60. They've been wandering this burning wilderness for 40 years, waiting for every mother and father in that crowd to die and become a burial heap in those burning sands. They've been waiting for 40 years. There are only three. Three of them older than 60. And only two of those three will cross over into the promised land. You know why? I can't explain it to you. It doesn't seem fair to me. But if you're a leader, listen to me. If you're a leader, you are held to a higher standard than anybody else. And just days ago, this far from the promised land, the leader fell. And the word is, you're not going, boy. You're going to die on that mountain, and then they'll cross over. I know it's not fair. But you accepted leadership. You accepted the invitation to lead. And you'll be now held for the rest of your leadership by a higher standard. That's just the way it is with God. And so they're there. Longest farewell address in history. This is a part of that address. I read the words to you just a moment ago. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Open your Bible to the fifth book. Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible... Uh, you got to follow with us. Grab the pew Bible in front of you, please. 
Same translation I'll be reading from the New King James Version, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Moses, seven chapters into this farewell address, thundering. You know, people have wondered, people have wondered how could one man proclaim this farewell address to the thousands, the tens of thousands. No PA, no outdoor concert, electronics, nothing but a man standing on the rock. And scholars have come to believe that, in fact, when it talks about there be leaders over thousands and leaders over hundreds, as it does in chapter 1, and leaders over ten, that those leaders were spaced all the way to the back of that massive congregation. And when they heard the preacher up front, the next wave picked it and said, repeated it, and the next wave, and the next wave. You think some of the sermons are long here. You ought to have had to sit through this. So Moses crying out the love of his life. These are his people. These are his kids. Their parents that he grew up with, they're gone. It's only the kids left and their children, and some of them even have children. So Moses crying out in the words, for on behalf of God, verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for you, that 120-year-old voice thunders, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. should hit the pause button right there. Because Moses chooses a very strategic word, kadosh. In its root meaning, that Hebrew word means to be physically separated. It's to pull something apart from everything like it. It's to separate it. In fact, the book, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first book of the Bible, begins with God declaring, I am going to now kadosh. Watch this, God says. You see this? One, two, three, four, five, six. I am now going to kadosh. Let's put it on the screen. I'm going to kadosh. I'm going to pull the seventh day, physically pull it apart. Separated from the rest. Identical 24 hours, same number of minutes, but this day now has been kadoshed. It is mine, not yours. I give it to you. Oh, I made it for you, but it's mine. Divine seal of approval on it because God kadoshed it. Some centuries later, God came along and said, Oh, by the way, when you earn ten pennies, when you earn ten pennies, I'm going to kadosh. I'm going to take one of those ten and I'm just going to slide it away. The one I slide away is mine. It's called the tithe. It's not yours. You can't spend it. You can't bank it. You can't save it. It's mine. If you want me to be your chief financial officer, you want me to direct your financial affairs. And trust me, boy, trust me, girl, he says, you need me. That kadosh tithe, you return to me. I'll take good care of you. Don't you worry about that. The same word God uses now when he speaks to this community of liberated slaves. He said, you know what I'm going to do? You are holy to me. I'm going to kadosh you. I'm going to separate you from everybody else on earth because you are mine. You belong to me. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 6 again. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, there is not really, truly, there is not a politically correct way to say what Moses just said. All he can do is just don't beat around the bush, just blurt it out. And that's what he does. He's talking to these grown up kids. He says, listen to me, listen to me. You who grew up on the desert sands, you who are the children of liberated slaves, I'm telling you, listen carefully to me. God has looked at you and he has said, I'm going to kadosh you. 
I'm going to make you my special treasure. I'm going to make you my special possession. And I'm going to pull you apart from every other human being on this planet. You, children, never forget. You have been kadoshed by God, as it were. You know, i got to tell you that in this day of equality and egalitarian fairness, it really feels, it, really, it does not feel polite. It does not feel proper. It does not feel politically correct to say it like that. But he, he said it like that. So what are we going to do with this? Hmm? I mean, we, we might as well be honest and admit. Certainly we can do this, having read this book once upon a time. Surely we will admit you cannot escape the fact that there is a selection process somehow in Scripture. Let me, let me just show you this. I'm going to run by some of the greatest stories of sacred history. I'll run them by. You call them out. Adam and Eve. First story on, on earth. Adam and Eve, they have two boys. Give me the names of the two boys. Two boys. What are the two boys' names? Cain and Abel. Doesn't it happen in that story? One boy gets chosen by God and the other boy gets rejected. Isn't that what happens? Now, I don't know what's up, what, what, what's up with that. I don't know. Antediluvian world. That's the world before the flood. In the midst of the antediluvian world, God finds a husband and a father and a wife. And they have three boys. And the boys get married, so they have three daughters-in-law. Noah. Isn't that amazing? God pulls aside Eight human beings and the rest let go. Isn't that what happened? I mean, what's up with that? And then you go over to Iraq. Today's Iraq. You go to a place called Ur of the Chaldees and there is a pagan family. And, the, and in the midst of that pagan family, there's a kid. Let me just tell you something. Even if your parents, even if your brothers and sisters do not grow up in the way your heart is telling you, you can grow up in a family that has not accepted God. You can grow up in a family and you can become a God believer in the midst of a family that says we have no time for God in this home. Because a boy named Abram grows up and God picks him out of the, rejects the family, says, I'll take that boy. Isn't that the way it happened, ladies and gentlemen? Huh? There's obviously some kind of a selection process going on because then Abraham has children. He gets a little impatient and so he has a, he has a little baby boy by his wife's handmaiden. Years later, his wife finally has a baby. So he has two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. How do you explain this? One gets chosen and the other chosen to a lesser destiny. There's a separation. What's happening here? Isaac grows up. Isaac has two boys, one named Esau, one named Jacob. How do you explain this? One of the boys is chosen for a lesser, lesser destiny and the younger is selected. What's happening here? By the way, Jacob grows up and he doesn't have two boys. He has 12 of them. And one of them, the next to the youngest, becomes the deliverer of the entire bunch. And one day, all 11 plus mom and dad all bow down to Joseph. Joseph and his 11 brothers. One gets chosen and the other's not. What's going on here? It's the story of sacred history. It happens over and over again. That little handful of Jacob's kids moves down to, uh, to Egypt, pagan Egypt, two centuries later. They become slaves. But God rejects the pagan nation and He takes this little band of motley. What's happening? It happens all the time. They cross into the promised land. They finally form a kingdom. They choose a king. God unchooses the king. 
and chooses a shepherd boy instead. You've got Saul and David. How do you explain it? God makes some, there's some kind of selection process going on. And eventually, when the entire kingdom collapses, it melts down, and God has to reject the majority. He still has a minority that he will call the remnant. And he says, these are my chosen now. Somehow, ladies and gentlemen, it keeps happening. You go off to exile, you finally come back, the, the days of glory are over forever, and then wouldn't you know it, that's when God decides to show up in person and in flesh. They called him Emmanuel, Jesus of Nazareth. And can you believe this? The leadership of his nation rejected him. But the masses embraced him. And when Jesus arose on that resurrection morning, there began to emerge a new chosen, not based on DNA, not based on geographical boundaries, not based on any temple in Jerusalem. A new chosen. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to take all these scriptures seriously, we are going to confront that there is a selection process. Throughout sacred history, there has been a selection process. In fact, that point is so crucial, I wish you'd write it down right now. Would you take out your study guide, please? It should be in your worship bulletin today. Thank you, ushers, for getting on it now. Hold those uh, study guides up. I want to make sure everybody here gets one. Those of you in the balcony, all the way to the back of the balcony, please just hold your hand up. A stunning set of parallels that we're going to examine this morning. You must examine and ruminate over these parallels on your own. Take it home. Take it home. Hold your hand up. Everybody get one. And I want to say to those of you who have joined us right now on television, we're so glad that you're here. I want to make sure you get the same study guide. So let me put it on the screen for you right now. Let me put our website. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. You'll see the series called The Chosen. It's the same uh, logo that you see on the screen right now. It'll have that uh, red cue ball in the midst of all those white ones. You click on to The Chosen. This is number two, why we are the most unique people on earth. By the way, if you weren't here watching television or you here this morning, you weren't here last week when the series was launched. You have got to please, please, for your sake, listen to why you are the most unique person on earth. You can download the podcast at that web address. You can get it. Listen to it in your leisure. That sets, sets us up now for part two, why we are the most unique people on earth. All right. Everybody has one. All right. Good. Let's go. Let's, let, let's, let's get our pens moving. Let's fill it out right there at the top throughout sacred history. There it is. By the way, you're always looking for the, the yellow words that are underlined. That's the word you'll fill in. Throughout sacred history, God, is, God has had a community of faith that he has identified as the chosen. Fill that in, please. The chosen. Throughout sacred history. We just, we just ran through the stories. We now know. Deuteronomy 7, 6. We read this just a moment ago. Keep your pen moving. Just fill in the words. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all. There's no preacher that invented that word. Moses didn't invent that word. All is the instruction above all people. Is this some little passing fancy Moses has to get it out of his system before the farewell dress can end? Are you kidding? Scripture is laced with this theme. I'm going to give you five other annotations from Holy Scripture. Keep your pen going now. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. God speaking. There at the foot of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God says to the people, these, these liberated slaves, you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. God's been saying this for a while. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, it's in your study guide, but we're not going to put anything there because it's the identical, uh, it's, the, it's the verbatim repetition of uh, chapter 7, verse 6. So let's go on. Deuteronomy 26, verse 18. 
Moses still speaking, the farewell address, beginning to wind down. Today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people. Chapter 7, special treasure. Now he calls them special people. Is this limited only to Moses? No. In fact, let's take the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Watch this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. Fill it in. God is speaking. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels. Now, I need to tell you, that word for jewels is the identical Hebrew word for special possession, special treasure. Only here it's translated jewels. What are jewels? That which I, that which I hold closely to me because of their great value. I'm going to make you my jewels, God says. Well, yeah, but this is just an Old Testament idea. Banished in the new. You kidding? You serious? Look at this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking of the Christian church now. Watch this. Fill it in. But you, these are pagans that have converted to Christianity that Peter's writing to. But you are a chosen. Now, the Greek word here is eklektos. From whence comes our word elected. So God says you, you are elected. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special. Peter grabs that word from the Old Testament and says it's still true. His own special people who once were not a people but now are the people of God. Ladies and gentlemen, keep your pen moving. Whether the children of Israel in the Old Testament or the church of Christ in the New Testament, clearly God throughout sacred history has chosen for himself a people to whom and through whom he has revealed the glory and truth of his character. Case made. End of point. So what's that have to do with the likes of you and me, you say? Look, could it be, could it be that Deuteronomy 7, 6 is talking about the likes of us, huh? Could it be? You say, well, what do you mean? The us. The us. I want to answer that in just a moment. This summer, doing uh, my sabbatical study, I came across a book written in the last century by a writer. Most of you never even heard of this writer. Taylor G. Bunch. Came across a book, title of the book, Exodus in Type and Antitype. I tell you what, with a title like that, who would even pick the book up? Huh? But I did. And in that book, I came across this intriguing observation. It's in your study guide. You have to fill it in. Notice what Taylor Bunch is concluding. See it there in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you. The Bible, he writes, is a book of parallel events and movements, of types and their antitypes. Hey, time out. Come on, preacher. What's this types and antitypes stuff? Well, it just goes like this. Did they sacrifice little lambs in the Old Testament? Did they? Yeah. Did the, did the blood of the lamb ever save them? No. Nope. What was the lamb about? The lamb was a symbol. It was a symbol of a much greater fulfillment, a greater reality that would come. This is the type. This is the antitype. The little lamb is the type. The lamb of God is the antitype. Antitype means the grand fulfillment. So what Taylor Bunch is saying is, hey, have you ever noticed the Bible is a book of parallel events and movements of types and antitypes? This makes the Bible an up-to-date book from Genesis to Revelation to the very close of human history. Now, here comes the sentence that caught me by surprise. One of the greatest parallels is found in what we call the Exodus and Advent movements of ancient and modern Israel. These are the two greatest religious movements in all history. Now, that is a profound claim to make. You understand what he's saying? There are two parallel movements in the course of sacred history. Movement number one, the little, literal children of Israel, exodus out of Egypt and move into the promised land. 
Movement number two, the spiritual children of Israel exodus out of this earth and move into the heavenly Canaan. He said there are two movements, the greatest movements in the history of this earth. And you and I are going to ask ourselves, oh, brother, I mean, is this true? I mean, the two movements, are they really parallel? So that if I can understand the first movement, I might better live out the last movement. Is that true? you got a study guide here. I want to now fly them by you. Fly them by you. Fifteen parallels. Fifteen parallels. Keep, you're, going to, you're going to have writer's cramp. You'll get over it. But to just keep that pen moving. Fifteen parallels between these two greatest movements in the history of earth. Consider these parables. Uh, parallels, rather. you got number one there. It's right in front of you. Number one. Fill it in, please. Both movements were called to cross over into the promised land. Capital P. Promised land. Write that down, please. Parallel number two, both movements are raised up in fulfillment of definite time prophecies. I've put a few verses at the end, one verse for each movement. You go home, you brood over it, you do the ruminating and do the studying afterwards. Don't, we don't have time to look these up. Number two, both raised up with a, in fulfillment of definite time prophecies. That's a fascinating one. You need to examine it. Number three, both movements were called to champion God as redeemer and deliverer from human bondage. Juan Carlos, who sang his heart out for us, let my people go. The, the, the punchline of that grand spiritual was bondage. Set my people. In every age, set my people free from this world's bondage. So both movements are called the champion God is the Redeemer. Number four. Parallel number four. Both movements were to journey under the blood of the Lamb as a symbol of salvation by faith alone in the divine sacrifice. Parallel number five, both movements were called out of sun worship. Exodus 12, God is clear. I have passed judgment on the gods of Egypt. And one of those gods is the god Ra, the god of the sun. He's judged the god of the sun. Both movements are called out of sun worship. Parallel number six, both movements were raised up to champion the law. Capital W, capital L rather, law. You see, that's why I never got chosen. When they did spelling bees, they just did. You can just leave Dwight. Just, we don't want him on our team. All right. Okay, number six. Both were raised up to champion the law of God. Number seven. Both were called to restore worship of the Creator God through the preservation of His seventh-day Sabbath. Write it down. Parallel movements. Number eight. Both would passionately look forward to the coming Messiah. Number nine, both movements were called to reject the fallen, the fallen culture and debased religions of the nations around them. Number ten, both movements were led by a divinely called prophet. Number eleven, both movements were called to adopt a lifestyle and diet that would reveal the stunning health differences between them and society at large. Number twelve, both movements would discover in the sanctuary system a defining revelation of God's salvation history on earth and in heaven. Three more. Number thirteen, both movements were to champion the Word of God as the authoritative revelation of divine truth. And by the way, Jesus in the wilderness... First temptation, Jesus in the wilderness goes to our theme book. And in the face of the tempter, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's straight out of Deuteronomy. 
Both movements will champion the word of God. Number 14, both movements are called the chosen. Revelation 14, 12, by the way, you look at it, the word, the word saint, you'll see the word saints. It's the same word for kadosh. It means to be physically separated, chosen, set apart. And finally, number 15, both movements were... Ooh, I want you to get this one, please. Number 15, both movements were capable of failing their mission and being replaced by a community of faith more faithful and obedient than they. Yep. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, what one writer calls the two greatest movements, religious movements in the history of earth. And by the way, remarkably parallel, aren't they? Remarkably parallel. What's going on here? Write it down. Could it be that to better understand the divine calling of the second movement, it is essential that we note the divine leading in the first movement? Could it be? That, Paul writes, is precisely the point I'm trying to make. Paul's making the point. Take a look at this. You need to look at it in your Bible. Last passage we'll look at. New Testament, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Take a look at this. You thought Taylor G. Bunch invented this and the preacher up front is just kind of grasping at straws? Wrong. Somebody long ago said, wait a minute. Two movements. One at the beginning. One at the end. Parallel movements. Parallel movements. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That would be page 772 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me find it myself here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at this. Verse 1. The Apostle Paul writing to the pagans, to the pagans in Corinth. They've become, the pagans have become Christian, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to pagans. He's not writing to Jews. He's writing to pagans. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware that all our... Isn't that amazing? He's writing to a group of converted pagans. And they said, he says, they're your fathers too. Our fathers. Paul's a Jew. Our fathers. Yours and mine. There's some kind of continuity here that apparently never gets broken between the two movements. Watch this. Moreover, brethren and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. Put the pause button right there. Do you know why we're in this series? Let me just tell you. I didn't mention this last week to you. Do you know why we're in The Chosen? Because you asked for it. When we surveyed this congregation last spring, you filled out surveys. Pastor, here's what I want you to preach. I noted carefully which ones were college students, which ones were community, which ones were faculty. You filled out the survey. We are in the series because of questions you raised. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. I didn't tell First Church this, but I'll tell you. We're coming to four questions that came up over and over from students at Andrews University. Questions about alcohol, sex, dress, and the prophet. And so starting in October, 
four sermons in a row. Your questions. And only in second church. Don't say a word to those who are coming to first. (laughs) Only in second church. When the teaching is over. I'm staying right here. We're throwing open mic and you can ask any question you wish about the subject we just covered. Not give any speech you wish. Ask any question you wish. And we will wrestle together. Come now, let us reason together. Paul says the very four questions that you have hot on your hearts as young adults, they're the story of the wandering in the wilderness. That's why we've gone to the chosen. You asked. We're there. That's why Paul says here in verse 7, Hey, by the way, don't become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Mm. Verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. We'll go to that story. Mm. Verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by servants. Serpents, have mercy. Verse 10, Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here comes the punchline now. Verse 11, Now all these things in the long ago past happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. Who's the us upon whom the ends of the ages have come? Ladies and gentlemen, what you just read is the mighty Apostle Paul declaring there will be a generation at the end of time upon whom the ends of the ages come. That generation will need to carefully study a long ago wandering in the wilderness. For out of that story of the first chosen, there will be truth for the final chosen. You learn the lessons of a movement long ago for a movement that will cross over into the promised land. Isn't that amazing? This isn't Taylor Bunch. This is the Apostle Paul. One movement came out of Egypt and journeyed toward the promised land. The other, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That that movement and the first movement. Unbroken thread. You saw 15 parallels. Unbroken thread. A century ago, another inspired writer wrote to the children of the second movement. When I came across these words, I said, oh boy, I'm reading Andrews University in these words. A young adult generation. Look at this. It's right there in your study guide. In many cases, the children. I'm thinking of the children. You are the children of the moms and dads who are dying in the wilderness wandering. You are the children of the grandparents who are already dead and buried. You are the children. I'm thinking of you. In many cases, the children like you are drifting away from the old landmarks. What's happening? What's going on? Here are principles that we are not to regard with indifference. Those who have seen the truth and felt its importance and have had an experience in the things of God are to teach sound doctrine to the young, to their children. They should make them, the young, acquainted with the great pillars of our faith. The reasons why we are called. Now hold on. Why we are called, as were the children of Israel, to be a peculiar people, a holy nation, separate and distinct from all other people on the face of the earth. End quote. Now that is a, that is a huge, huge claim and command. The two greatest movements, religious movements in history. But let me just talk heart to heart with you now before I sit down. Here's my concern. 
does this generation even know that it's chosen? Does it? Do you? Okay, I'm talking to you. Do you? Do you know? You who are the children of us baby boomers. Do you even know that assuredly, as God raised up that movement long ago, He has raised up this movement today? Do you even know that? Does this generation know that this community of faith is not just another denomination in a smorgasbord of churches today? That this movement has been personally ordained, decreed, and raised up by God for such a time as this. Do you even know that? Do you even know it? You do not. You haven't been told it in a long, long time. And that's why I'm concerned. We got a generation... I don't know if you realize this, but we, we have a generation just as surely as you were personally chosen. Remember last week? Just as surely as you have a unique destiny, we have a generation that has a unique, unique destiny. Do you understand that potentially, potentially, you are the generation with the stunning potential of being able to lead this movement to cross over without seeing death. No death. Moses died. A whole generation was buried. But come on, guys. Someday there will be a generation that will be alive and it will not see death. It will cross the Jordan alive. Do you understand? You, potentially, you, Are that generation? Have you been told that? Have you been taught that God has given you the potential of being the last generation on this earth? Do you understand that? Look, I have baby boomer colleagues. All right? I have baby boomer colleagues who get very nervous. Whenever this portion of their forgotten heritage is brought up. You know why? And I want to say this. I want, to, I, want to, I want you to know that their motives are right. You know why? Because they don't want to offend anybody. That's just the way we baby boomers are. We just want to make everybody happy. They don't want to offend anybody. And so they have lived their lives trying hard to be accepted by the wider Christian community and the surrounding world. We're just like you. Really, we are. Can we be on your team? Will you choose us? For some of them, for some of them to speak of an Adventist identity and an Adventist institution, And an Adventist movement is anathema. You will never hear them ever say Adventist. Christian. Not Adventist. So, come on, Dwight, what's the difference? Of course, of course. At its core soul, it's Christianity. 
But there's something more. Whenever they hear something like, something akin to this coming from a pulpit or this pulpit in particular, they get nervous and start talking to each other. After all, who wants to be the chosen when all you wish to be is accepted? One of the brightest minds in America today, I don't agree with him philosophically, but he made an observation. I found it. I've written his words on the bottom of the page for Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Richard John Newhouse, one of the celebrated intellectuals of this generation. Richard John Newhouse. The words are in your study guide. God's chosen ones live out the drama and destiny of God Himself. Now listen to this. It is a fearful thing to be chosen. It is as though God enters history through His chosen ones. He's right. It is a fearful thing to be chosen. Two great movements through which God has entered history through His chosen ones. But do our children even know it anymore? Do we? On the eve of His death, Jesus looked into the upturned faces of His closest and dearest friends on earth. And Jesus spoke the words of John 15, verse 16. Jesus says, you know what? You did not choose Me. You didn't choose Me. But I chose you. Which, of course, is the truth about the chosen. You choose the One who chooses you. Go back to that playground one more moment. That, that glorious moment when one of the captains called your name and your heart leaped. I'll not be left on the sidelines today. He chose you, but you went running up to Him. You were so excited to be on the team that you said, I chose this team. Captain, I choose you to be my leader. That's just the way it works. When you've been chosen, you choose the One. Who chooses you? God, give us a generation poised on the brink of the promised land. God, raise up for us, please. A generation that knows that in Christ, this last movement can truly be a movement of destiny. Unequivocal in your choice. Unequivocal in our choice of the Lord Jesus. God, give us that generation today. Let us pray. Oh, God. Oh, Father. What are we going to do with this? It's inescapable. Shall we throw our elbows out of joint, patting ourselves on the back? What a tragic mistake the first movement did in doing just that. We cannot. We dare not. But Holy Father, if you've been waiting for this generation, and I believe you have,
If you've been calling these young, and I know you are, oh God, beginning today, sow the seeds of that unique destiny deep within his mind, deep within her heart. And may she, may he, may we, in the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand for you in this hour for the sake of your character and your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.